feel free to put your feet up on your own um, um, coffee table if you want. And for those of you who are joining us in the, in the building today, we're delighted to have you as well. And we are embarking on a brand new series of sermons on the parables of Jesus. So for the next six or seven weeks, we are going to explore uh, the meaning of some of Jesus's parables. Today, we will begin that series by looking at Matthew chapter 13, 44 through 50, and I would like to read it for you, and you can follow along if you have a Bible or if you have an electronic device with a Bible on it, or you can simply just listen. Uh, interestingly enough, the parables uh, a lot of times were just heard. Jesus would preach to a crowd that often were illiterate, and they, they learned through listening, so that's okay too. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 50 The parables of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought this field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything that he had, and he bought it. Once again... The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it uh, up onto the shore, and then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad fish away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, just sort of as sort of an introduction into uh, the parables themselves, the parables of Jesus are some of the most beloved and most misunderstood teachings of Jesus. They're they're both uh, uh, both at the same time. Um, On the one hand, they're often brief. They're straightforward uh, stories that make a spiritual point. On on the other hand, they're sometimes confusing, uh, a little obtuse, I love that word, and indirect in in their message. The one thing that can be said about the parables is that they were Jesus' favorite way of making a spiritual point. When Jesus taught and and preached, he always, almost always used parables. And and when he told parables, he did so with the intention, really, of communicating a message about God's kingdom that he believed at the time that his listeners needed to hear and understand. So here we are today, we are embarking on a series of sermons uh, from Jesus' parables. Sometimes the parables will leave us with a, with a smile on our face as we discover the way Jesus is, is encouraging us, his listeners, to see our lives of faith and faithfulness in a slightly different manner. Sometimes Jesus' parables will catch us up short as we recognize that Jesus is actually asking of us something that is more than we are presently willing to do, more than we are willing to give. So no matter which of, uh, of those things is happening uh, in us at the moment, if we are paying attention, Jesus' parables will invite us to consider the character of God's kingdom in a way that we've never thought about it before. So before we jump into these three brief parables that I read for us a moment ago, let let me just give you a couple of quick tips for reading the parables that will make it easier to understand them as we go through this series of sermons. 
First, the first tip that I want to offer you is this. Read the parables in context. When we read a parable, we may be inclined to think of the parable as sort of a standalone story that doesn't really have anything to do with what came before it or what came after it. And this can be true in some cases, but not all. There will be times when the gospel writers are placing the parables side by side because they're trying to make a particular point. They're trying to illustrate a larger point about God's kingdom. This, in fact, is the case with the three parables that we read today a moment ago. Um, So my first tip to you, if you're going to join us in this reading of parables for the next few weeks, is read the parables in context. Okay, second tip. Read the parables as a metaphor for your own spiritual life and practice. What do I mean by that? Jesus taught using parables because it was an effective way to communicate a spiritual point to his listeners. The the parables can be an equally powerful way to help us be reminded of our own spiritual blind spots. I mean, I've been in the church a long time, as I'm sure some of you have, and um, uh, if we're honest with one another, we have all kinds of blind spots. We, we, we find our groove, and we stay in that groove. And the parables are, are different enough that sometimes, if we're paying attention, they can kind of knock us off that groove into a place where we hear afresh, for the very first time, some meaning in, in the parable that we didn't understand previously. So read the parables as a metaphor for your own spiritual life and practice. That's my second tip. Third tip, read the parables as an invitation to new life in Christ and to spiritual growth. This, this third tip is, is really sort of a continuation, if you will, of the second tip. But even, even though we may love a particular parable because it's a compelling story or it has characters that we like, the parables are essentially what my former New Testament professor calls stories with intent. Behind each parable that Jesus tells us, there is an intention that we take the parable to heart in a way that deepens our faith and causes us to grow deeper in our understanding of God's kingdom. They're they're not just cutesy stories. So, thirdly, read the parables as an invitation to new life in Christ and your own spiritual growth. So, as we look at this first of three parables this morning, very briefly, um, we will notice that the first parable in Matthew 13 begins with this phrase. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. In this brief statement, Matthew is giving us a clue to what this parable is ultimately about. This is a parable about God's kingdom. It could be about any number of things, and we will take a look at some other parables during the course of this series of sermons that are about other things, but ultimately, this one is about God's kingdom. We are told right from the outset that this parable has something to do with the kingdom of God and its value to those who follow Jesus. Jesus goes on to describe God's kingdom like a treasure that has been buried in a field. So the second piece of information that we glean from this parable is that God's kingdom has value, right? That's what we learn right off off the bat from this, this parable. This simple message 
of this first parable is that sometimes in life we encounter something of inestimable value and it requires us to do something about it. And this thing of inestimable value is the treasure of God's kingdom. This thing of inestimable value is a way of life that God offers us in Jesus Christ. This treasure, or, or God's kingdom, if you will, makes all other worldly pursuits, whatever they may be, pale by comparison. Now, I don't know what you're pursuing right now, but it, this story makes me think of when I was a kid, my best friend Carl and I, uh, we had an idea one day. Um, we grabbed a couple shovels, and we were going to start looking around in my backyard for buried treasure, and we dug, and we dug, and we threw the dirt over our shoulder. And as the hole got deeper, we had to go find a ladder in order to get deeper into the hole. And uh, later on in that uh, afternoon, early evening, my dad came home from work. <laughs> my, dad was not, uh, my dad was a very kind and gentle Swedish uh, gentleman who I rarely remember raising his voice except for th on this occasion. Because we had spent all day basically digging a hole 10 or 12 feet deep. And he said, boys, you're not, you're not coming inside until you, until you refill this hole. This, this, this kingdom that Jesus is describing is so valuable, Jesus says, that it is worth whatever effort, whatever it costs for us to discover it. And when the man in the parable discovers the treasure and recognizes its value, he is willing to make a significant investment in real estate to ensure that he can take possession of the treasure. Did you, I mean, you caught that, right? He finds it, and then he reburies it because he needs to go out and buy the property so that he actually owns the property on which he finds the treasure. In a similar way, Jesus wants us to understand the value of God's kingdom is, is so great that it might, no, it's going to cost us something. Jesus wants us to know that some, stumbling upon a buried treasure in a field, like winning the lottery, is not really the point. The point is every follower of Jesus has to come to the recognition that God's kingdom has value and will ultimately cost all of us something. If it doesn't, there is no point. If you follow a Jesus that doesn't cost you anything, then you're not following the Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus moves from the parable of the buried treasure to the parable of the pearl. This time, it's a merchant who desires to purchase a pearl or a set of pearls, who knows, just like the treasure hunter, when the merchant finds the pearls that he's looking for, he sells all that he has in order to purchase this pearl or this set of pearls. There's a similar sense in this parable to the last one. Did you kind of catch that? Someone discovers something of inestimable value and recognizing that value, they are willing to calculate the cost and in this case, sell everything that they have in order to purchase this beautiful object, this pearl. It reminds me once, I, I think I went to, uh, uh, maybe it was Knott's Berry Farm as a kid on vacation, and they had like a little pearl diving, or no, maybe it was SeaWorld, it could have been SeaWorld, 
and they had a little pearl diving uh, exhibit there, and, and the divers would go down and, and pick out um, oysters, right? They're in oysters? Yeah. Oysters, and they would open the, uh, the oyster, and you'd find this beautiful pearl. And, and you, know, you know how, uh, how, how pearls begin? They begin as an irritation uh, of where sand gets inside the oyster. So the oyster creates this, this material that surrounds this grain of sand and makes it into a beautiful pearl. Unlike the treasure seeker, the pearl merchant doesn't appear to, to stumble upon this item of great value accidentally. The pearl merchant sets out looking for this pearl and doesn't stop looking until he finds what he's looking for. And if the kingdom of God is like this, then this parable, if you think about it, extends our understanding of the importance of God's kingdom by suggesting that it's not just something that we happen upon. The kingdom of God is something that we actually seek and we pursue intentionally. Just like the treasure, the pearl will cost us something. And the kingdom of God is so important, it is something we seek until we find it. There is an intentionality about it. There is a pursuit that, that extends beyond the serendipitous discovery of a treasure in the field. Or a couple of teenage boys, you know, digging holes in their backyard. Finally, Jesus uh, concludes this series of three parables by presenting us with one more metaphor for the kingdom, uh, a fishing net. In this last metaphor, Jesus returns to something that, that he knows well and his listeners at the time knew well because many of his disciples were fishermen at the time. The kingdom, Jesus says, is like someone who goes fishing with a net, which, uh, which is a little different than fishing with a pole. For those of you who haven't done it, uh, I, didn't, I didn't discover this, the difference between the two until I spent a couple of years serving a church in, uh, in Alaska where um, residents in Alaska uh, get what are called um, dip netting licenses. And at a certain time of the year, I think it's in August, uh, I think it's actually just finished, they go out with these large nets, uh, stand up to their waist in, in one of the rivers, and they just dip and depending on the run of salmon at that particular time, um, they, could, they could pull up 10, 12, 15, 20 uh, salmon in one dip of the net. In this case, the kingdom, Jesus says, is like someone who goes fishing with a net. He drops his net in the water, and when he pulls his net in, he discovers that he's caught all kinds of fish. Then the parable turns a little dark. I don't, know if, I don't know if you noticed this. And, and that's what it's going to be like at the end of time, uh, Jesus is implying. There, there will be all kinds of fish populating God's kingdom, but when the king returns, he will throw the bad fish into the fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a very common phrase that is used in, in, uh, in literature that kind of points towards God's future kingdom. This, this, this sense of sadness and despair that you miss something important. This last parable really is a clear and sort of decisive expansion of the message of these parables from just finding something of inestimable value and being willing to pay the price 
to what will happen to those who misjudge the value of God's kingdom in this life and are surprised to discover that they didn't make the cut in the next life. This future emphasis on God's kingdom in this third of these three parables paints kind of a stark contrast of the importance of recognizing the ultimate cost of God's kingdom. In the end, there is a judgment that God must make about who is included and who isn't. When I was in seventh grade, um, I had spent uh, the early part of my childhood uh, playing my favorite sport of all time. It was basketball. Um, My favorite player at the time, and I'm dating myself, there may be somebody here or somebody listening online who recognizes this name, and and if you do, you're probably over 50. But uh, my favorite player of all time was a player named Jerry West. Anybody heard of Jerry West? Yeah, okay. And I wanted to be the next Jerry West as a seventh grade student uh, in uh, playing basketball. And um, my, my, my same friend, Carl, who we dug holes in the backyard, we played basketball in uh, my basketball court and on his uh, hoop in his, in his driveway almost every day that we could. We just, we just loved the game. And uh, when it was announced at junior high that they were going to be doing tryouts for the JV a basketball team, Carl and I looked at each other and said, yes, we're going to do this. And so we went to the tryout, and of course, when, when, whenever you go to a tryout, you're kind of sizing yourself up with all the other players, right? Because you know they're going to, they're going to take the first 15, and all the rest are going to be cut. So, you know, I'm playing, I'm making my free throws, I'm, I'm uh, you know, hustling as much as I can, and I'm, I'm looking over here to, to Joe and Joe's about six inches taller than me. Yeah, he'll probably make it. He's probably better than me. Okay, it's all right. There's still 14 more. And then I'll look over here, and we got Frank over here. And Frank is really fast, and he's a great ball handler. And I think, yeah, um, I'm not as good as Frank, but I think I'm still in the top 15. And so for that first week of tryouts, you tried your best. And I, I remember going home at the conclusion of every day of tryouts, kind of measuring myself against Uh, the other players to see whether I was still in the top 15. Well, on Friday, that's sort of the day of reckoning when you uh, try out for a sport. The coach, after practice, said to all of us as we were standing around um, after doing lines, uh, which just exhausts you, uh, he said, uh, when you go into the locker room after practice today, there'll be a sheet of paper hanging up on the wall, and the 15 players that made the team will find their names on that paper. Those of you who didn't make the team, thank you very much. Uh, see you around. And it was, I remember, even now as I'm telling you this story, this many years later, I'm thinking to myself, wow, did I make it? Was I in the top 15 or not? So I walk in there, and I'm kind of uh, trying to gen, uh, generate sort of some self-confidence. Oh, yeah, Brad, you're going to be fine. And I get up to that list, and I look at the top three or four names. Oh, yeah, sure, those, you knew those people were going to make it. And then I go down the list a little further, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, they, 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 they really did well during this tryout. And then I've, I looked at the bottom of the list, 10, 11, 12, and when I got to the end, my name wasn't there. I got cut. I didn't make the team. It was the end of my career as the next Jerry West, just as it was starting. 
The idea that God would ultimately make a judgment about whether we are included in God's kingdom doesn't sit well with us, does it? In addition to implying that some will be included in God's eschatological kingdom and some will not, it implies that God may not be as open-handed as we desire when it comes to who's invited to God's future kingdom and who is not. That's what this last parable implies. Rather than getting annoyed at the possibility that we will be judged at some future point in time by God, and you may find that an annoying thought, consider that this last parable of God's future kingdom is more about the fact that there will be a time when the wheat will be separated from the chaff. There will be a time when God must pick the weeds out of the garden so that the other stuff can grow. And those of you who are gardeners, you know what I'm talking about. When, when you just plant your, your vegetables, the weeds and the, and the plants are hard to d- differentiate, but it's when they get a little bigger, that's when you start going out there and picking the weeds, right? There will be a time when everything is good, true, and beautiful about life in God's kingdom must reflect that same beauty in eternity. This final parable of judgment with all of this distasteful language about uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and about judgment is not meant to discourage us from following and seeking God's kingdom for fear that we won't make it. On the contrary, this parable of judgment falling right on the heels of the parable of the treasure and the pearl, reminds us that should we decide, should we choose to seek after God's kingdom, it's not something we do on a lark, but it's something that that we do and we throw our entire heart into. The the world, folks, has enough half-hearted followers of Jesus. God desires The kingdom requires full-hearted followers of Jesus. And if it's true that the kingdom of God is an inestimable value and worthy of the price we must pay to acquire it, then it's also true that life in this kingdom is not for the faint of heart. It's not for those who dabble in their faith one minute and leave it aside the next while they run after whatever other pursuit they want to to follow. Now, these three parables may seem like odd parables for us to begin a series of sermons with. What started out with a bang quickly becomes a downer when we discover that God will keep the good fish and throw out the bad. I mean, nobody wants to be... uh, tossed aside like day-old fish. But if we read between the lines of each of these parables, we will notice that Jesus is saying something very important about the nature of God's kingdom and our place in it. Here's what I think Jesus has to say to us about God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is worth whatever price we are required to pay. The kingdom of God is worth whatever price we have to pay. And our job is not to haggle with God about the price like we might haggle with a used car salesman. Our job is to pay whatever price is necessary in order to enjoy life in God's kingdom. There is no price that is too high. 
Secondly, the kingdom of God requires intentional pursuit. The pearl merchant wasn't distracted by other gems. He wasn't going after diamonds. He wasn't going after, you know, other precious metals. The pearl merchant was interested in shopping for pearls. And in the same way, there comes a time when each of us must face the reality that we are either all in for God's kingdom or we're not. We're either singularly focused in our pursuit of God or we are not. We are either dedicated to leading a life that represents and reflects God's kingdom or we're not. And then the last insight I think that we gain from these parables is that the kingdom of God is not for everyone. Even those who wish it were otherwise. God's future kingdom will include some and it will exclude others. And we need not fret about that because in the end, it's God's problem to figure out who's who and it's not ours. That should give you some consolation. The point is not about who makes the cut and who doesn't. The point is that there will come a time in God's future kingdom where God will decide who makes the cut. Just to finish up my story about... um, to being cut from the seventh grade uh, boys basketball team. I was discouraged, of course, after not seeing my name on that list, and I uh, went away and uh, um, decided to join the boys club basketball program, and and I did, and the coach that cut me from the junior high uh, basketball team wanted to have a scrimmage with the boys club team that I was now playing on, so we played, and uh, I killed it. I played the game of my life. I was scoring points. I was stealing balls. I was passing like crazy. And our boys club team actually beat the junior high basketball team. And as I was walking off the court, feeling um, hopefully not smug, but proud of myself and our team, because we were, there were more than just a few of us who had been rejected from the junior high basketball team, the coach came up to me and he said, um, he said, Brad, I, I want to um, offer you my apology. I, I made a mistake. I, I, sh- I should have kept you on the team. I don't know why I remember that conversation other than that if this coach was gracious enough and kind enough to say that to me, and he didn't have to, what do you think about the God that we worship uh, when it comes to whether we are made it or didn't make it? I, I put a lot more faith and confidence in God than I do in any basketball coach. So I say that as a, as a word of encouragement to you. To you. There, there will be a time when God has to decide uh, and make the, who makes the cut, But this prospect shouldn't dissuade us, but inspire us to to seek God's kingdom with more passion than we ever have before. This prospect shouldn't make us cynical and say, oh, I don't don't, uh, trust or believe in a God like that. It should make us more intentional and more passionate about the pursuit of God's kingdom than we've ever been. It should motivate us to count the cost. And follow Jesus where he is leading us even now. 
In a moment, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And as we do this, in light of the parables that I've just read and spoke about uh, with you, you if you need to do a reset in your own pursuit of God and God's kingdom, I encourage you to use this time to do that. And, and you know if you do or not. If you've tripped over buried treasure in the course of your life and you never fully understood what value it potentially offered you, now is the time to take another look, pick up the shovel, dig a little deeper, and discover this treasure that God wants you to have. If you've spent your entire life shopping for anything and everything except for a pearl of such great value that is God's kingdom, perhaps today is the day that you should focus your pursuit to just one thing, and that is God and God's kingdom. Finally, as we come to the table this morning, please be reminded that God invites us to this table and offers all of us the blessings and benefits of God's kingdom right here and right now. Why does God do that? Because God loves us. God wants the best for us. And it is in this same love that ultimately is represented in the bread and the cup of sacrifice that we will consume together in a moment. Friends, come to this table. Share the bread and the cup and be reminded that this is only a foretaste of the blessing that God has for us both now and in the life to come.